You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. All right. The message of Lent is you are going to die. And that is a story. And honestly, it can feel like a depressing one. And taken to its extreme and without Easter, that is what we would call nihilism. And that is not a new theory, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, that, is a, that is quoted in the Bible as the main header for people who do not believe in the resurrection. That is the water humanity has been swimming in for ages. Climb the ladder, indulge the senses, seek pleasure, hide your star, scars, get by, and die. Our world is about stories. Your life is a story, and the way you share your life is a story. It's a story about where you came from, a story about where you are, a story about where you are going. It's about your hopes and your disappointments and your victories and your wounds. And we make sense of life by living in stories. Cultures across time and space live in stories. And if we were to title one of the chapters in the story of the Western world, it would be Unimaginable Possibilities. One of my favorite shows to watch is Shark Tank. I love Shark Tank. Um, And whenever they have someone walk into the tank to give their pitch for their million dollar idea, the sharks eat it up and you can hear Mark Cuban almost like clockwork say, this is the American dream. You are living the American dream. But if you do a deep dive into the show, you realize that endorsements like that happen once every 300 or so pitches. Uh, Most of the time, these billionaires are fielding uh, failed business owners, disorganized budgets, and challenged ideas. But the reason the show has been running for 14 years is because someone like Jamie Sinanoff was on the show, and he sold his company Ring to Amazon that's now worth $1.2 billion. Raise your hand if you have a Ring doorbell in your house. And here's the deal, because people who have entrepreneurial spirits are red meat to that show. They watch it and think the possibilities are limitless. And this feels like the best way to live, right? With nothing but potential in front of you, a world of positivity, the sun always rising, the winter never coming. The only problem with that story is We know how far that is from our reality. When life happens and unimaginable possibilities rush into broken reality. Think for a moment. What happens at the office or on the playground when the conversation shifts from weather and sports to a pending divorce, the latest tragedy, struggling kids, What happens? We change the subject. We have become master artists at changing the subject. When inner curiosity about things in life significantly increases, just change the subject. When the stuff of your past comes up, it's just easier to dismiss it as someone else's problem. 
change the subject. And when a coworker starts to feel uncomfortable with the way the conversation went from three feet to eight feet in a matter of seconds, we'll just change, change the subject. And of course, it is much easier to change the subject on the heels of your wedding day or the birth of a new child or a job promotion or a move across the country because there's nothing but bright future ahead. No one blinks at the subject getting changed when we are living our best life. And most of us know that most of our life is not lived on top of the Grand Canyon. And as much as we might attempt to live in a fantasy world where we medicate or ignore all the pain that life entails, we can't get away from the gnawing feeling this is not the way it's supposed to be. It is not enough to change the subject. And part of the reason why we want to change the subject is because we are under some illusion that a painless life is a meaningful life. And that there is no redemption to be found in our wounds or in our wounding. Somewhere along the way we became convinced even with and maybe especially within the church... That pain, either the type that we have inflicted or the type that we have inherited, must be erased from history. We have bought it. A painless life is a meaningful one. But have a conversation with anyone on their deathbed, and they might recall to you their highlight reel, but they're also probably going to talk about their suffering. Why? It is because... Whether we like it or not, suffering in our life gives us meaning. And the way we navigate through it. Everything about Easter and everything about Lent and everything about faithful discipleship to Jesus does not let let us erase our wounds or our wounding. Sins committed against us and sins we have committed. Any integrous reading of the story, any real meaningful interaction within the story is marked by wounds. It's marked by your sin and it's marked by your suffering. You cannot escape it. And one of the main reasons we know that we cannot escape it is because God did not escape it. It would make sense to us if God ruled the world without incurring pain on himself. It would make sense if God recused himself from the mess of our life because it is so messy. We wouldn't blame him because that would be our choice. (laughs) A pain-free life. But that is why our love is secondary to God's. There's a thousand snapshots that make up the Easter story. But I want to highlight three, and that is the confusion at the cross the people at the tomb, and the future of the world. There are two faces in the story of Good Friday that I want you to see. The first face is Thomas. Now to give you some context for Thomas, we go back to a pivotal moment in John 10. A lot of the Jews continue to ask Jesus, if you are the Messiah, tell us. If you are the one our fathers have told us about, you should speak up. And Jesus responds, I have told you, the problem is that you are not my sheep and thus you don't believe. And he says, I and the Father are one. 
And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is a repeated theme throughout the Gospels. Jesus identifies himself as God. People take such offense, they attempt to murder him. And fast forward, Jesus travels across the Jordan River to a neighboring town when he gets word that his friend Lazarus has died. He has died in Judea, the town where he was just in, where the impassioned Jews attempted to publicly stone him. So naturally, he says, let's head back to Judea. Of course, his disciples are the rational ones. They just try to end your life. So how about let's not do that? And Jesus says, no, let's go to Lazarus. And Thomas, called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Here's Thomas, one of the twelve, going down with a fight. He is prepared. He is ready. He knows Jesus is not going to get some welcome back party upon his reentry, but he is willing to die because Jesus is not a symbol for him. He is not a cause to fight for. He's not a reaction to a previously lived life that wasn't working. He is his master. He has given his life to follow Jesus, so he is going down with honor. He is not ready to merely defend Jesus. He's ready to be buried with him. And then the Passover meal comes and the disciples gather around a table. God breaks bread, showing them this is what is about to happen to me. And I can imagine there's some uncertainty around the table. There's some unease. You're eating Passover dinner and all of a sudden Jesus takes the bread and says, this is my body. And Jesus takes the wine and says, this is my blood. And then Jesus takes the disciples to the garden and they fall asleep. And we can assume that Thomas was there. And then they arrest Jesus. And the story does not give us any inclination that Thomas is anywhere. The man who said we are going to die with him is absent from the scene. The second person I want to focus on is Mary Magdalene. We first get wind of Mary uh, by this description. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. So here's two important descriptors we have. Mary, a woman. Mary, a formerly demon-possessed woman. First, on women, we know that women were not meaningful contributors to the life of Rome. We know that women were deemed as second-class citizens in Rome's social hierarchy. And we know that even in the life of the temple, there was something called the court of women in which they could enter no farther. And to be frank, reading this through a Western lens, it is difficult to wrap our heads around the idea that women were more seen as property than they were as people. And we know that Mary's life, as Rebecca McLaughlin calls it, was a playground of demons. She was ravaged by something more than spiritual darkness. It was spiritual oppression. It wasn't just that she was a sinner. It was that she was possessed. And the text does not tell us her marital status, whether she had kids or much of her previous life. But here's what we do think in our minds. A demon-possessed woman is the last person who would be recruited for the Son of God's team. Specifically in a cultural climate where you looked at women as property and you looked at people who were possessed as hopeless, lifeless, 
and cursed. And yet Jesus frees her from this. And she becomes His disciple. Her devotion and faithfulness to Him was so strong that Mary is also one of the very few people that are mentioned at the foot of the cross. Here is this woman who has been freed from a life of spiritual, mental, social, and physical oppression. She has got her second lease on life. She has helped fund Jesus' mission and ministry. And there she is on this little hill, now looking up at Jesus, hanging down from the sky. She might be kneeling, maybe an arm wrapped around her to comfort her by one of the other women or men at the cross. And there must be questions. There can't not be questions. Jesus, you said you and the Father are one. What are you doing? Why are you letting them do this? Jesus, you restored me. You brought me into the family of God. And now this. This is not real. Good Friday is the story to show us that neat and tidy doesn't really fit. Life is more marked by questions than answers. More by distressing confusion than perfect conclusions. Elie Weisel was a Romanian who found himself in a concentration camp and he communicates what all of us naturally find equally blasphemous and yet the foundation of our entire faith. In his book, Night, he recounts his life in Auschwitz. There is a dark, dark scene where he tells of a boy hanging on the gallows. And as he looks at this death scene, this is what he says. Where is God? Where is He? Someone behind me asked. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Then the march past began. For more than half an hour, the little one hung there, struggling between life and death, and we had to look him full in the face. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, Where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, Where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on these gallows. Is this not the picture? It is impossible to stomach that God would enter such devastating evil and that He would suffer such wounds. The Son of God would hang on Roman gallows. And that is where He meets so many of us. Think about the words that Jesus says as He breathes His last breath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Raniero Cantalama says, Christ became the atheist, the one without God. So that men might return to God. Hours before he is crying out to the Father, not my will but yours be done. And now he is crying, where are you? Good Friday, Holy Saturday. Our sin upon God and God's booming silence. Can you imagine being a disciple then? If you're honest, I sense that you probably can because you have experienced disappointment, frustration, and the ever-changing impulse to just walk away. The moment of lapsed judgment or the outright denial, maybe not with your mouth, but with your life. Or just the moments where you're asking, God, just say something. 
It's not that we don't feel like we're not getting an answer. It's as if God is not even aware of our questions. This is what marks so many of us. It's not God's no. It's God's silence. It's not that we disagree with his answer. It's that he, it feels he's not even in the room. And by the way, we are not the only ones to experience the mystery of the presence or the perceived absence of God. One of the premier theological voices of the last two centuries, C.S. Lewis writes this in A Grief Observed. What chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers we offered and all the false hopes we had. Step by step, we were led up the garden path time after time. When he seemed most gracious, he was really preparing the next torture. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, one of the patron saints of the church, who is lauded lauded by followers and non-followers of Jesus alike for the good she did in the world, wrote this. I feel that God does not want me, that God is not God, and that God does not exist. There is a scene in The Magician's Nephew where Diggory's mom is dying. And when Diggory first encounters the great lion Aslan, he drums up the courage to say, May I, please, will you give me some magic fruit of this country to make my mother well? He had been desperately hoping the lion would say yes. He had been horribly afraid that it might say no. But he was taken aback. That it did neither. Does this resonate? The experience of Holy Saturday is where we find so much of our life. We are in between. We have found so much of our freedom in God. God has given us our life back. We've touched His garment. We've heard His voice. We've sensed His presence. He has met us in some uniquely profound ways. He's restored us and He's forgiven us and He's done miraculous things in our life. And we've done things in the name of God and, he, and felt empowered, right? We have found freedom and experienced mercy. We have found intimacy with God and experienced love. And we've heard what feels like the devastating silence of God. And what we feel is not that God and I share different opinions, but that God is apathetic towards me. And the fear that is most deep within us comes out. Alone. I am alone. Why do you not care? A little while later, Diggory dares to ask again. He thought of his mom. He thought of his, the dreams he had for, the, for his mom's life. And how they were all dying away. And a lump came in his throat. And he blurted out, but please... Please, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? And up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. But now, in despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. 
the years and the weeks and the days leading up to Good Friday. And Good Friday is itself is proof. God weeps. God weeps in the scriptures. He weeps over sin. He weeps over cities. He weeps over death. He weeps then. He weeps now. Do not mistake the silence of God for his absence. The story he is writing has turns we would not write in. But the fact is that he wrote himself into the story to take on our sin and our suffering as his own, which means his voice may not always be audible, but his coming is proof he has not left. It is precisely amongst the grossest evil that God is birthing a miracle. And the question that is the loudest on Good Friday and Holy Saturday, does God care, is put to open shame on Sunday. So we go back to Mary with the people at the tomb. It's Sunday. We assume that she went out on Holy Saturday when the Sabbath had officially ended and purchased spices for Jesus' body. She goes to the tomb, but she's not going to the tomb because she believes he is resurrected, by the way. She's going there to mourn, to begin the process of putting a bow on this man's life that gave her another shot. So here is John's account. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she, saw, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, it is so profound to me. That the first words written down that come from God's mouth upon resurrection is a question. It's not a grand entrance. He's not even noticed by someone who would have noticed him. It is a caring question. Woman, why are you crying? Upon resurrection, God still stands most intimately available to those of us who will willingly admit what is going on. And the second thing he says is her name. He says her name and all of a sudden the rushing wind of belief re-enters her body. Circle back to Thomas. Jesus appears to some of his followers who are in the upper room, but Thomas is not there. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Here is what he is saying. You can be gullible all you want. But I said I would die for this man, and he left me high and dry. Have at it, but unless I touch him with my own hands, I ain't buying it. Will Williman is a professor at Duke Divinity School, and he shares this story of a time where he is going to do a funeral 
for a child. He's got his clerical collar on. His sermon is polished and ready. He's going to be facing down grieving parents. The front lines of those who are most affected by this tragedy. And he paused for a minute and just looked up at God before he went out and said, Don't make me go out there and lie for you again. This is Thomas, but this is also so many of us. So much of our confusion and our frustration and our pain around following Jesus is not around the knowledge of its doctrines, but personal disillusionment when life did not go the way I wanted, even though it was in Jesus' name. Did you catch Thomas' name? I feel like some of you, if you have your Bible in front of you, will see what it says in Greek. His name means twin. It's prophetically ironic because in so many ways is not Thomas the mirror for us. We're fickle people. We're on fire and we're ice cold. We're ready to be a martyr and we're highly disinterested. We love Jesus and we, sh- we are sure we do not believe him. We build our lives around him and we do everything we can to avoid him. We will die with him and we have been disappointed one too many times to ever risk real belief again. We dare to dream kingdom dreams and we dare to never look foolish like we did that one time. Don't make me go out there and lie for you again. That might not be the theologically most accurate statement, but it sure feels honest. Following Jesus is personal for us. Our story gets wrapped in his and we read about a wedding feast at the end, but it feels like we're just working toward a giant funeral. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hands and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. You know, the last 12 months, I have felt so much like Thomas. At one level, I recall back to the story of the culture, which has just changed the subject. That is not enough for me. But at times, what is equally true is the story of an empty tomb of a first century Jew who was born to nobodies, who other people have told me about. That too is not enough for me. And if you're honest, it is not enough for you either. Just like Thomas, we do not need the historical evidence of an empty tomb. We need the shadow of the presence of God. To just believe in an empty tomb is to believe in what the devil believes. The devil believes in Easter Sunday. He just does not care about its implications. Don't misunderstand me. It is good It is good to believe in the historical, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's what our faith is built on. It's necessary, though, to define what we mean by belief. Because to believe in the facts is not the same as to love the person.
Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus is speaking to us. Those who wait. Those who long. Those who have our wounds and our own regrets, our own challenges with belief. And we see Thomas and we take jabs at him in retrospect. But internally, we get it. We get it. But then we listen to Jesus who have not seen and yet believed. See, this is the future of the world. The essence of our belief does not reside in an intellectual knowledge of a historical event, but an inward groan. We echo the words of those walking on the Emmaus Road after the resurrection, after they encountered Jesus but didn't know it. He reveals Himself to them. Then He leaves them. What did they say? Did our hearts not burn within us while He talked to us on the road? While He opened to us the Scriptures? Did our hearts not burn within us? It is the shadow at every funeral and it's the whisper at every wedding. It's the long meal with friends and it's a wonderful night's sleep. It's the first day in the garden after a long winter. It's the smell of spring. It's a great workout. It's sharing scripture with one another. It's the prayer of the saints. It's the inclination that God may have something to give someone else. But He is asking you to give it to them. It's the bread and wine and the meal. It's the dawn of resurrection. The hungering and the longing and the joy. And the encounters that feel transcendent are rumors of another world. See, the future of the world is cosmic. When Jesus speaks Mary's name, she responds, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is the cosmic message. God is creating a new family to which all are invited. Hear the words of Jesus and what He says to her. To my Father and to your Father. Go to my brothers. Jesus is Lord and He calls us kin. Jesus is Lord and we share His blood. Jesus cleansed the temple as a foreshadowing of His equitable table where everyone gets an invite because the condition for each of us is the same. The veil gets torn in the temple as a sign that reads, I am the great high priest. No longer are there a certain class of people appointed who can approach me, but I have made myself available to anyone who would come. Even more to the point, the temple is not made of stones. It's made of your flesh and your blood. You are the temple. And the story is cosmic because resurrection is not about paradise in the sky, but heaven on earth. Paul writes in Romans, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Resurrection is baked into creation. What is creation telling us? Why does a caterpillar bury itself into a cocoon only to come out a monarch? Why does the acorn go into the ground to come out an oak tree? Why does the bear retreat into hibernation only to reappear in the spring? Why does the sun disappear beyond the horizon only to wake us the next day? Why do so many things like forest fires and decaying plants actually create ideal conditions for a generation of new life? Why is it that our literal bodies shut down and we phase into a type of unconsciousness that we call sleep? That is actually necessary for the next day where we function at optimal levels because in some ways we died. Creation is telling a story every day. And the theme of the entire story is resurrection is God's plan for the world. It is not a woundless world. It is a resurrected one. Through his wounds, God is righting every wrong. He is upending every evil. It's all-consuming and all-encompassing. It is larger than private spirituality. It is global renewal. But here's the kicker. We can hear that and think, wow, what a vision. And we miss that the invitation is for us. Because the future of the world is cosmic and the future of the world is personal. The words of Jesus in John's vision in Revelation 22 is the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The good news is the future of the world is so much bigger than our personal vantage point, but it does not exclude our personal world. God is not interested in writing stories without names. Easter is is cosmic. It encompasses the globe. But it's not cosmic at the cost of it being personal. The first words from Jesus' mouth, Mary. He says her name. The wounds of her being known as the woman who was possessed by a demon, making her a social outcast, a nameless female have been met by the wounded God speaking her name, ready to show him his wounds. The story of God redeeming the world is cosmic. It encompasses people groups and economic classes. It is wide enough to reach the FBI agent and the refugee struggling to pay rent. Its scope surpasses languages and cultural norms. It subverts Roman emperors, North Korean dictators, and American presidents. It upends social expectations, inviting the Michelin star chef and the houseless to the same table. Everyone is welcome at the table. The only condition is you raise your hand and said, I need you. The kingdom is expansive, but it is so intimately personal. Resurrection is not an idea. It's not a slogan. It's not a cause. Resurrection is a person. And honestly... Wouldn't it be easier if resurrection was just a metaphor? 
Jesus lived a revolutionary life and he gave us some helpful principles to go off of. And he even raised a man from the dead. And then he died himself. And his message lives on in the minds of his followers, even if he's dead. That is a much easier thing to stomach. And quite frankly, I feel like that's probably how most of us live our average Thursdays. Jesus, the principal man, Jesus, the revolutionary man, Jesus, the virtuous man. But Jesus, the resurrected man. If he literally rose from the dead, Jesus is not a revolutionary. Our response is Thomas's response. My Lord and my God. Resurrection is not a theory. It is a person. The worship of God who has wounds and it is his wounds that heal us. His wounding means he is taking on your personal sin. And your personal shame. And he is binding your personal wounds. It is not general sin. Or stereotypical shame. Or generic wounds. Because the crucifixion was not a general death. For generic things that are typically wrong. It is specific. God became a real man. With real wounds. To offer real healing. To real people. For all time. By his wounds. His actual wounds. We get healed. We come to know the fullness of the love of God and we have nothing to hide because Jesus is pursuing us by His Spirit with His love. And the end is a resurrected body being loved and loving a resurrected King in His resurrected world. This is the story we are living in and it is the most compelling one. Let's pray. As the worship team comes, the prayer is very, very simple. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you invade our hearts? And would you give us a vision for a life with you? Not a woundless life, but a life full of hope in the literal resurrection. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.